So you can open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to understand one thing this morning, that unity is a gift of God. And it's maintained by his character lived out through us. You see, we're continuing our series in Ephesians this morning. And we're moving, we're turning the corner, as it were, in the book of Ephesians, from belief to practice. Like, what do you believe rightly about who God is and what he's said and done in your life? And then now, how should you live as a result? That's what's happening. That's the hinge point that we find ourselves in chapter 4. So before we really dive into all this, turn to your neighbor for a moment and maybe ask this question or talk about elements are present in disunity. When there's not unity, think relational unity like in your home or in the workplace or at school or on a sports team or something like that. What are some things that are present when disunity is happening in a place that needs unity? So go ahead and then we'll, you know, do a little response here. All right, does everybody have their answers? I feel like probably I'll just call on people. So like Jace, Andrew, Wyatt, what do you guys have? (laughs) (laughs) There would be no fist bumps if there's disunity. Okay, (laughs) excellent. Anybody else? What's an element that's happening in disunity? What's something that's going on? Anxiety. Anybody else? Self- Snap judgments. Wow. Anybody else? Lack of the spirit? What was that over here? Oliver says arguments. Yeah, all those things are present. Today, we're going to look at the, the character and the cause of unity from Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, So if you will, take your Bibles, turn to page 977 in the Pew Bible. I don't know what page it is in your Bible. I'm not that good. Um, But you could just go ahead and stand to your feet and let's honor the word of the Lord as we read and ask uh, his spirit to make it alive in our hearts. Can I just say as we start to read this, uh, Lord, we believe your word is true even if our experience is not that. And we just submit to it right now. It's teaching, it's exhortation, it's encouragement, it's conviction. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Have a seat. So the character of unity is where we're headed first. We don't walk worthy, as Paul's talking about here, 
so that God will love us. We walk worthy because he does. Now think about this. Paul has just spent three chapters building a foundation of no merit. Like, Brent's a really great guy, but he doesn't have any merit to stand before the Lord than I do. Christy's a great woman, have any merit to stand before God than I do. None of us here does. And that's the point. That's where, it, that's where he's starting off. He's, he's built this whole foundation, walk worthy. How can I walk worthy? I'm so unworthy. That's the point. It's Christ's sacrifice. It's meant to make you go, I, I know how lousy I am. And I need the sacrificial life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on my behalf. It's meant to make you look toward him. I've actually looked at it this way, the, the shift from, from doctrine, like what you believe, to the idea of practice. Picture somebody carrying two five-gallon buckets, right? And, and there are camps here where people place so much emphasis on doctrine that there's almost zero in practice, and they're jerks in talking about what they believe. We've all been around those people. I've been one of those people. Okay? That, that bucket would be five gallons full of water on one side and one on the other, right? You're going to walk with a kink in your back. It's going to be difficult. But what Paul is setting up here is this understanding that your doctrine, your right belief, actually balances your practice. What you believe about what God has said matters. How you live out what God has said matters. The two are not exclusive. You can't say, let's only do practice. Let's be a church that's only about action. No, you've got to have, like, right action, because action and action matters. And so picture a person walking a tightrope with two five-gallon buckets filled equally with water on both sides, and you have a picture of walking worthy. So then Paul outlines a couple of different characteristics of unity. And he starts with humility. It's interesting because uh, in antiquity, in ancient times, humility actually was never a positive trait. And maybe I just ask you this question. Have things really changed? <laughs> have things really changed so that like when we think of somebody who's humble, we actually have a good opinion of them? See, all of us in this room, we do. Because Jesus Christ has taken that adjective, humble, and he has redeemed it. In the, in the Roman world, the Greco-Roman world, when the time of this letter was written, the idea of uh, humble or humility was actually an insult. It was, uh, it was a weakness in character. It wasn't to be displayed. It was actually something that was expressly avoided. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and he talks about being humble and lives humbly before their people, many are going, what is he doing? Doesn't make sense. It's an upside-down kingdom. See, in, in classical Greek, it would have been portrayed as a derogatory term, like a low-minded, dumb servility. That's somebody who's humble, somebody who just, just does what they're told. They're just a yes man. And Jesus comes along, he redeems it, and then you read things like in Mark 10, 45, that the Son of Man came to serve, right? And to give his life as a ransom for many, not to be served. He had every right to call for it, but he didn't. And then you read Philippians 2, 1 through 10, 
You know, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, any fellowship with the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, make my joy complete by being like-minded. And then he launches into the best hymn of the church, of Jesus. So Jesus is all about humility. And Paul's saying, you want a worthy walk that's going to produce unity, it has to start with humility. And you'll notice in the text it actually says, Humility and gentleness, and, the, and they're kind of paired together. Um, gentleness is this idea of strength under control. It's like the athlete who's poised to make a move, and all of his strength and all of his training is right on the edge, and then the moment comes and presents itself, and boom, he's right into action at the right time in the right way, functioning perfect moment. That's strength under control. And we think gentleness, some, some of your Bibles probably have it translated as meekness, and we think of like a little quiet church mouse, not really doing anything. Uh, no, God's called us to be people who are poised for action with right strength, executed at the right time in the right way. In fact, Jesus, again, exemplifies this in Matthew 11, where he says that he is gentle and lowly. He's gentle. He's poised with strength, acting at the right time. It's his very nature. And then I'm going to talk about patience. I love this description of patience from the early church, Father John Chrysostom. Um, in the mid to late 300s, he said this. Patience is the spirit that has the power to take revenge but never does. Have you ever been in a position where there have been no fist bumps and things have been very difficult, right? You've, have you ever been in a position where there's been so much strife and you had the upper hand and you could totally play it? I mean, you could really punish a person for their stupidity, or for their foolishness, or for their absent-mindedness, or for, their, for whatever. But you chose not to. And, and, and they did something to you that was of great harm. So that it makes you even like doubly more verified. <laughs> you could do it. And you choose not to. You see... The spirit that has the power to take revenge but never does. Jesus sets the example yet again with Peter. In Peter, he has somebody who he pours his life out to for three years and deals with his very flamboyant outbursts and all this stuff. But he does this for three years, right? And then on the eve of his like trial and crucifixion, all this stuff, he tells Peter, like, hey, you're going to betray me. Peter's like, nah, bro, I'm with you to death. <laughs> like a few minutes later. And then here it goes. And he betrays him. Now think about that for just a minute. Think about what that must have been like for Jesus when he sees Peter and he looks across and he sees Peter warming himself by this charcoal fire and then Peter's denying and speaking about Jesus as though he doesn't even know him. And Jesus, having the upper hand, days later on the beach when Peter is coming in from fish, builds a charcoal fire. So Peter already must be thinking, what's he doing? And he invites him in. 
and he meets him where he's at, and he displays patience. He had the upper hand. He could have played it. He could have flatlined Peter, but he doesn't. That's the character of unity. 2 Peter 3, verses 9 and 15 say this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And then verse 15, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. So here's Peter saying, This is what I've learned. That I deserve much worse. And I got much better. So even in this, we're starting to see, as Paul's talking through Ephesians 4, and he's helping to people to understand, what's the character that leads to unity? you got to remember how Jesus has treated you. Right? Romans 2, 4, Paul says the same thing when he talks about this idea of like, hey, look, it's the patience of the Lord that leads you to repentance. You're like, but you don't know what I've done, Doug. I don't need to. You don't know how evil I've been in my thoughts. You don't know what I've done behind closed doors. You have what I've done. It doesn't matter. It's foolishness. It's nonsense that you can't be forgiven and restored by Jesus Christ. There is no sin so large that his patience cannot overcome the gap. There just isn't. And that is what makes for unity. Paul even talks about this idea that he was an insolent, horrible person. And then he says um, that Jesus, for this reason, in me as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. Some of your Bibles actually say unlimited patience. A parent of a child in this room should be raising their hand saying, where is like the fountainhead of that type of patience? (laughs) Because I need it. Like, unlimited patience, let me have it. Because every day I don't necessarily feel like I've got that kind of patience. And honestly, patience is just this. It's knowing ourselves as deeply sinful and how that goes hand in hand with knowing Jesus as supremely patient. Then he moves on from uh, humility and gentleness and patience to this idea of bearing with one another. Or another way to say it would be forbearance. To buddy. I think it kind of goes hand in hand with patience, right? I'm not going to forbear with somebody who mistreats me and I have a difficult time with if I don't have patience and love toward them. And so the whole idea that he's getting at here is helping us to understand forbearance is linked with an idea of patience, One author actually says it this way, it's a commitment of my will to benefit another. That's what forbearance is. And this can be with a believer or a non-believer. Patience will find its expression in forbearance. Um, If you didn't have to forbear bad treatment or hard circumstance situations, um, patience would be easy. (laughs) Because I would wait for something that didn't cause me any difficulty. But if I have to wait for something that brings difficulty and harm and hardship, then forbearance is actually hard. In fact, something I can't do. So those are the character pieces of unity. 
And really, you could look at the idea of patience and gentleness and meekness and, and forbearance, and you could say they all sit under this umbrella of love. Brady did a great job talking about this last week, helping us to grasp this idea that um, the fullest expression of life abiding in Jesus will be in a life of love toward other people. And these character traits that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians 4 are exactly that. They're love um, made tangible. Then in verse 3, we move to this idea of this wonderful gift of unity. Paul says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So let me just say this, that I don't have to manufacture, create, or somehow dream up unity. It's actually a gift that is given to me by uh, the sacrifice of Jesus mediated to me by the Spirit. And this idea of unity, my goal is to maintain it. My goal is to keep it up. My goal is to keep it living, to nurture it. And Paul has just gotten done saying, look, if you lack humility and gentleness and meekness and, and, and forbearance and all these different things, you're going to have a really difficult time understanding the unity that has been gifted to you. <clears throat> but he says, you've you got to be eager to maintain it. That term eager actually means spare no effort. Um, think in your minds right now. Can I come up with a situation either with my spouse or with my kids or with a friend from school or a coworker in which there is disunity? And am I eager? Am I sparing no effort to maintain unity? Am I? You see, just as a bone next to another bone does no good without a ligament and a muscle attached to it. So we see that peace will not be known without love expressing itself through humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance. And you may be wondering, why in the world is Paul so adamant here? Why, why is he hammering home this idea after talk worthy, I want you to really think about humility and gentleness, and then he dives in a third time, he's like, I want you to be eager. And if you're, if you're the person reading this letter, you're wondering, well, why in the world is he so adamant? Because he's getting ready to talk about gifts in the church. He's getting ready to talk about that every person who, who comes to faith in Jesus Christ is given at least one spiritual gift that is not for them but it's for the building up of the church. And so Paul's saying, look, if this whole edifice is to be honoring to God, if we're to be a people of God that displays his love in the world, then you, you have to understand how unity is maintained. Gate right past it. And you each have a gift. Matt's going to be talking about that next week. The point is not which gift you have. It's that you have a gift and that you put it into practice. It's that you have a gift that says, hey, uh, am I somebody who is an encourager? Yeah. Then you should be encouraging someone in the body of Christ today. To not put it into practice is to ignore the call that you're told to walk in, like Paul has just said. Do you hear that? We need you. 
We need the artist. We need the musician. We need the preacher. We need the prophetic prayer warrior. We need the encourager. We need the administratively excellent. We need the generous. And on and on the list goes. We need you. Because your inclusion and your contribution, first of all, to this body, forms a more accurate picture of Christ. A more well-rounded picture of Christ to the watching world. And by extension, then our church does the same to a larger nation. So you're like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not one of those people who's real public. You know, maybe my gift is administration. Awesome. There's plenty of ways, even within the church body, that that can be used. Well, maybe my gift is, is, is uh, music. Awesome. We need worshipers. And not just on Sunday mornings. So that's the character of unity, the cause of unity. And, and it's important to note in verses 4 through 6 that this is all one sentence. Paul likes long sentences. He really wouldn't pass in a grammar school because there's lots of run-ons. But overall, there's one sentence in the Greek in verses 4 through 6. And in it, he uses words like one and all a lot of times. Paul is emphasizing, he's driving something home, he's helping us to grasp it. And he does so by saying these really simple things. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. So he starts first with the Holy Spirit. That one body refers to his church. And you can jot these references down and look them up later. In Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, it says that the church is his body. In chapter 2, verse 16, it says that uh, Jesus came to reconcile us both, meaning Jews and Gentile, to God in one body. He's talking about the church. In chapter 3, verse 6, it says Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. He's clearly talking about the church. First Corinthians 12, Romans 12. These are places where you can find lists of the spiritual gift that will help you. Matt will discuss that a little bit again next week when he preaches. But the cause of unity is the Holy Spirit. He brings it, the one who's bonding people together in the church. But it was all made possible by what Jesus did. And Paul points that out in verse 5 when he says, One Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Jesus is master. We need to submit to him. The faith that is talked about is the gospel. We need to recognize this. And then baptism. There's a little bit of debate over like, well, what's Paul really talking about? I would say it's best to just look at this understanding that baptism is just an identification with Jesus. So are you someone here this morning who, I don't know, I'm just not good enough yet to get baptized, and you haven't done that, you haven't pulled that trigger? There it is. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Get that process rolling. Get baptized. Understand that you are part of the body. It's for your good. It's for your flourishing. It's for the good of the church. 
And then it says in verse 6, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The picture there is just this idea that most often in Scripture, you, and even when we talk about it, when we talk about the Trinity, we always say Father, Son, and Spirit. And, and, and from cause to effect. Paul flips that in these verses where he's like, nope, Spirit, Son, and Father. He's arguing from effect to cause. And he's doing so so that we understand that God had this plan all along. That overall, this is what he's after. He's after unity in his church. And I have no problem thinking of God as overall, right? Like, yes, God is sovereign, right? Even the idea of God being my focus through it all. I'm like, yeah, God is through all, no problem. But like when you get to that last part and it says God is in all, then I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) Not so sure about that. And you're like, give me an example, Doug. How about Ukraine and Russia? Is it possible that this? Well, if you believe the Bible and you read Romans, and particularly in Romans 8, 28, and it talks about this idea that all things work together, that God is in those things, how does he do that? And I would just say it this way, that with God, every hurt, every victory, every situation is an opportunity for unity. That's how he's in all things whether it's something that's great and and contributing to unity, or whether it's something that's literally the opposite of unity, like war. How is God in it? It's because it's an opportunity for unity. That's why we pray for people in Ukraine. That's why in Russia. That's why we pray for soldiers, because we want them to know the love of Jesus and be unified with him in order to be in his church. So what's all this mean? the character of unity and the cause of unity. Um, I have some things that I put up on a slide here uh, for like a truth to life or like a, just a weekly practice, okay? And just three words, and then I'll describe them briefly, and then we'll close with a song. You're like, what can I do about all this? You know, it's, it's great that we're supposed to walk worthy and I'm supposed to be humble and all this, but like what are some actual things? Um, first and Listen, Jesus asked so many questions. He was more often known as the person who would respond to a question with a question, which would be infuriating at times. But in reality, he listened. And so I would say, if, if you're like, well, I think I listened pretty well, maybe ask yourself this question. Do I find it difficult to not insert my opinion in a conversation? That'll help you to know whether you're a good listener. Well, no, I really feel like I speak up. And, and, and if you can't answer this question of like, do I find it difficult to not insert my opinion? Maybe ask your spouse or close friends who loves you and will actually tell you the truth. They'll tell you whether you have a hard time not inserting your opinion. Second thing you can do is you can rejoice. You could rejoice in diversity. You could rejoice in the diversity of gifts that Paul is going to talk about next when Matt preaches next week. You could rejoice in the fact that around the throne of God is every tribe, nation, language, every color of skin, every differing belief about how you practice worship. Like all of that is around the throne worshiping Jesus at the end of all time. 
That is awesome. That is worth rejoicing in. Not this like petty little existence of what my preferences create, but in the church, what does that look like? Jesus wants that. And so that's what we rejoice in. You say, I think I rejoice in that. Here's another question to help you. I like questions. Do I find critique hard to receive but easy to give? Then you'll know if you struggle with rejoicing. Do I find critique hard to receive but easy to give? And just as an encouragement, this church is filled with people who are awesome at calling out the good they see in other people. And I mean like calling out the character and nature of Jesus Christ in someone. Not, great job parking that car. And lastly, I would just say this, engage. You're like, well, what do you you mean engage? (laughs) Well, if you're someone who's not been baptized, I would encourage you, engage. Like, move toward that. Uh, if, If you're someone who is not involved in a life group, or if you're not using your gifts to help bless the larger body. If you're a gifted teacher and you're not helping in teaching Sunday school, ask the Lord, is that something you want me to be doing right now? Another question to help you if if you're wondering, do I engage well? You could ask this, is there a reason I I am waiting and not? Because sometimes we hold back because of the fear of what may happen when we take a step of faith. And so I would say that can sometimes hold us back from getting engaged in what God is calling us to. So I'm going to close this in prayer, and then uh, we're just going to have a closing song. During this song, I just encourage you to reflect in your hearts um, on unity, on walking worthy, that unity is a gift of God that's maintained by the character that we live out. So go ahead, Jay, you guys can come up. Father, thank you so much for your mercy for how you live and move and act among us, uh, bringing gift, uh, not something we produce. Help us to maintain it in humility. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.